Welcome to Art of Retreat 2019, the parkour leadership and education retreat. We're in the Cascade Mountains outside of Seattle, Washington. I'm Craig Constantine from Movers Mindset, and I'm here with Rafe Kelly. It's great to be here, Craig. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Rafe Kelly is the founder of Evolve Move Play and one of the co-founders of Parkour Visions. He has a wide range of movement experience, including parkour, gymnastics, many forms of martial arts, and contemporary dance. Rafe has also spent time studying motor learning, play theory, and evolutionary and neurobiology in his journey to better understand and optimize human movement. Welcome, Rafe. Thank you. Rafe, your session was The Adaptive Athlete, Ecological Dynamics and Skill Development for Parkour. So the first question I'm asking everybody is, can you give me a high-level overview of like what the session went over, and then we'll dig into a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the idea is that we want to create broad-scale adaptability in athletes where their skills can generalize um, from any one task to, to other tasks. That's the idea of the adaptive athlete. And then ecological dynamics is essentially the combination of dynamical systems theory and ecological psychology. Um, and in particular, we're looking at that as applied to, to mood or movement and motor learning theory. So, um, dynamical systems is essentially the, the recognition that, um, there are systems that have nonlinear and emergent qualities. The most classic one would be natural selection, right? So essentially if you have two cost functions that are operating oppositionally, mm -hmm. one of them being selection, mm -hmm. right? Natural selection, the other being variation, which is created through mutation and, <clears throat> and sexual reproduction. Um, those two things create this, you know, nonlinear emergent capacity that we see as the living world from which, you know, very basic building blocks create everything that we see around mm -hmm. us. So, when we look at the human body, we have traditionally tended to analogize it to a machine or to, um, uh, to a, a computer. Right, so we've thought apart, right? yeah, we've thought about, um, about movement from the perspective of essentially programming in a motor program that then gets the machine to operate in a specific mm -hmm. way. Um, but that's not how human beings operate. We're actually basically ecologies of systems that, um, operate in a dynamical way. And once we understand that, that implies a lot about how we optimally coach because when we're most of our coaching pedagogies in a lot of sports are essentially stuck in the analogy of man as machine mm -hmm. or, um, the mind as a computer. Uh, and that actually leads us to make certain mistakes in the way that we teach. So understanding, um, understanding that is, is really key. And, you know, the, so the big two kind of figures, uh, you know, there's many, but there's big two figures who, who really define this, um, the, on the dynamical systems, there's lots of stuff that's kind of related to dynamical systems. But the first thinker who really applied this or recognized this within, um, within motor learning was Nikolai Bernstein, who's a Soviet neuropsychologist from approximately the 1930s. And he recognized that essentially, so under the kind of man as machine mind as computer analogy, when we, um, uh, what we do in learning a skill is essentially that we build a motor program mm -hmm. that, that we're then going to apply and that the body operates like a machine controlled by that motor program. Um, the thing is that machines basically are all built off of components that have a single degree of freedom. Right. Right. Um, so it can only do what it was built to do. It can only move in one way, but every aspect of the human body it's actually that. <laughs> has many degrees of freedom. And so it, it can't behave linearly. And, and essentially, so there, he, he identified these as two pro core problems. One he called the problem of context conditioned variability, 
So this is a problem like in robotics, right? If you take a machine and you want it to have the ability to walk, you know, you can program it with a walking gait, um, but it's very difficult to get a machine to walk over anything other than flat ground, ground. because it doesn't have enough degrees of freedom to, to actually uh, adapt. And you mentioned that Bernstein was a neuro... Uh, biologist. Uh, he was called a neuropsychologist. And the, 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 the neuro aspect of it strikes me as interesting because there's also the feedback systems. Like a lot of the balance control yep. in walking doesn't involve your brain; it's lower spinal cord. And I'm just wondering, did he was that what drew him in there? Did he see that, and that drew him to taking apart the the pedagogy because of how he saw neurology? Or uh, I'm not sure. Um, I haven't read him talk about that directly. I'm not mm-hmm. even sure that the, that level of kind of understanding of the nerves was present mm-hmm. in the era that he was looking at. Um, you know, he, you know, his big study was on blacksmiths and, you know, his fundamental kind of observation with blacksmiths was that blacksmiths were incredibly precise in where their hammer landed. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were actually hugely variable in the path that the hammer took to the landing. Oh, that's interesting. So if you imagine that man is machine, and again, the mind is computer, then the, the program should operate the same way every time if it's going to have a precise result. But it's precisely the opposite. And we see this actually in um, in motor performance in general. What you'll find is that the more skilled an athlete is, the more variable the performance the, the, the performance. Um, well, at least certain components of the performance are. And what you can think about that is, is that essentially there's many things that can disturb a motor performance. And so there's lots of, there's lots of degrees of freedom that you need to have in order to, um, to fluctuate in order to get to the the core thing. Right. Right. So if you imagine that you're, you know, uh, you know, I, I like to use the analogy of basketball, maybe that won't be the best for people, but if you imagine you're, you're dribbling up the court to shoot a basket, right. And, you know, you're going a certain speed, right? And you have to stop and juke out the guy in front of you, get him to back off. You do that one time, you do it the next time, he bumps, uh, he bumps into you. You're, you're going a little bit faster the next time you're doing this. There's, there's so many variables that are happening. So you have something that needs to be stable, which is his, the release, right? And the body structure under the release. Um, and of course, there's all the distances from the hoop, et cetera. And then you have the, all these components of the performance that have to be variable. So within um, motor learning theory, these are referred to as attractors and fluctuators. Mm-hmm. So um, to, to use baseball ex- as an example, your hands have to be at a certain place in the zone at a certain time. But again, the pathway that takes you there has to be variable in order to allow you to respond to circumstances. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing with, with gait, right? If you're walking and you apply the same motor program every time, you would actually not be able to walk. Um, and that's, that's what happened when they started developing robotics. And AI and, and, and robotics is actually also another area that's been very um, informational in getting us to understand how um, actually the way that we build machines, it, it doesn't give them the adaptive abilities that human beings have. So when you, so you take this, um, this, I don't want to say conceptual because it makes it sound like it's not necessarily yeah. true, but you take this theory, this framework that you've got, mm-hmm. and how do you... Um, when you bring it into your session, do you bring it in as a mixture of lecture or is it best to just take people out and can you actually unpack this idea physically in a session or yeah. how, do you, how do they learn it? So, I mean, the, this, that was a lecture that I, I gave. You know, I'm, I'm expecting people to have a pretty good understanding of some pedagogy. Um, but in my workshops, you know, we, we go over these concepts. Um, we, we don't dive as deep 
But uh, what we do is we, we essentially help people recognize the process of their learning and help people see how it might be different. So I'll give you a really classic example. So the big thing is if you tend to think of, of movement as a, as a set of instructions, then your role as the coach is just to get the right set of instructions into the athlete's head. Right. Um, so you'll, but actually a, an athlete is a self-organizing system. So what your, your role isn't so much to give them the right instruction is to give them a context that allows them to self-organize effectively mm. the correct, a correct solution because their correct solution is also not necessarily the same for every athlete. Um, but a classic example of this is, um, uh, is doing a, quadrupedal crawl right mm-hmm. um like hands and feet on the ground crawling uh if you this is very common in lots of different physical culture crossfit gmb you know your portal whatever it is um, and obviously parkour if you put someone on flat ground and you ask them to do that and you have a class of beginner parkour athletes you'll find that at least 50 percent of them will adopt a ipsilateral crawl when one hand moves forward the same foot moves forward um most teachers want athletes to engage in a contralateral. Um, it, it is more stable, the contralateral crawl. Now, that's not to say that ipsilateral crawls are never useful, but there's reasons why people want that. Right. Um, it's the same thing that we do when we walk. We move contralaterally when we're walking. When our foot moves forward, the opposite hand moves forward. Um, so we use this pattern a lot in life. It's very important for neurological development. But for whatever reason, you put people horizontally, and all of a sudden that contralateral coordination is difficult for them to organize. Right. Um, however, what I found was that, um, when I took people into nature and I put them all in a tree and asked them to move quadrupedally, they'll automatically do contralateral Contralateral. Mm -hmm. because there's enough information in the environment to constrain the, the, the athlete and allow them to see the optimal pattern more effectively. Mm -hmm. So. So we will make this point. Do you intentionally, because you're basically describing different attractors and, and like the, you, the way you described the basketball case, mm-hmm. um, when you coach it, do you think, and do you actually think like, oh, what, what I'm missing, I need a drill and I'm, these people are going to need this kind of attractor. Like, can you actually take it apart at that theoretical level and then assemble a delivery for them that way? Mm, yeah, to some degree. Like, you know, I think that we're always in the, in the process of identifying these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I try not to be overly, uh, certain of my own knowledge, Mm. right? I think that one of the things that coaches really need to adopt is the Hippocratic oath. First, do no harm. Um, I think that actually people don't realize that, uh, that how, how much interfering with someone's learning process can actually, we tend to think that we, that because we know things that we can help someone get better at movement just by talking to them or just by, uh, getting in their process but a lot of times we actually do more damage more damage than we do good and so once you realize how many ways that talking to somebody that instructing somebody can actually mislead them um you realize that your first job as a coach isn't actually to to instruct um it's to create effective spaces mm-hmm. and there's kind of two components to that one is the component of um of like setting up the tasks that will allow them to self-organize. And then the other is also just setting up the emotional space that will give them permission and give them a sense of social support that allows them to engage in a process effectively. But the process has to be self-organized. And there's really interesting research on this. So, I mean, we're kind of bouncing all over, but... Well, that's good because um, this, I mean, like, it's yeah. kind of a high-density thing. But when you... Um, something you said there jumped out at me, which is the idea of 
creating the emotional space. And, and my immediate thought was, the people that you encountered here at Art of Retreat, um, it's decidedly more parkour centric. It's not sure. entirely, but that's it's mostly those types mm-hmm. of people. Um, do you find that they had a particular, I don't want to say a weakness, but were they drawn to the space, like the creation of the physical space, and maybe weaker on paying attention to creating the emotional space, or are they are they balanced? I'm wondering how that plays out because that's an interesting aspect to parkour. A lot of people would say parkour really teaches you like emotional intelligence as well as physical skills. And I'm wondering, like, this could be a, um, a place where you could have a, a, a learned opinion of, like, well, no, actually, they're weaker on one or the other. Yeah, yeah. So actually, this was a topic. If my that analysis came even up. makes yeah, sense, no, right? <laughs> that's funny because this topic came up in one of the workshops that I taught. So we did a workshop on what I call aliveness in parkour, which is... Um, Ooh, that's a good word, sorry. Uh, I yeah. interrupt you, that's a good word. <laughs> yeah, so essentially, uh, this is a this is a, an idea that I got out of the martial arts. And the idea is that when you practice a pattern, like a punch, it's a dead pattern. It doesn't have, it doesn't teach application until you put it into an alive context, which is a context of sparring, right? Some level of, of, um, where you can't, yeah, yeah, where you can't predict exactly what's going to happen, right? Where you have to deal with someone else's energy, their timing, their rhythm. Um, and I believe that essentially if we want parkour skill to be functional and adaptable and to make us better, not just at jumping and vaulting, but make us better as athletes in general, we need to be doing the same types of things. So I did a workshop on this. And one of the topics that came up was, um, that this switched parkour from being a parallel play to a, um, to a partner play activity Mm -hmm. and that this opens the door for um, a different kind of emotional exploration and uh, development of emotional literacy. Mm. Um, and so, I, you know, I love parkour. I love the the solo art of going and looking at a jump and breaking it and how that gives you this really interesting window into character. Um, but I think fundamentally, most of our lives are actually social relational. and yeah, Interpersonal. Yeah, interpersonal. And if we don't have practices that translate the qualities that we're developing um, in our movement practice to something that we can use in that social relational um, arena, then we're uh, we're definitely not serving ourselves as well as we could right. at, at minimum. Rafe, one of the goals for the Spark Talks, and I've said this on a bunch of these now, is to actually spark either conversation or physical activity or new thinking in the people who are listening. So. Um, what we've talked about is a lot of really good ideas, but how do we get that to like gel in someone's head so that they do something different with it? Yeah. So I want to back up for a second and then I'll kind of get to the challenge. But I think that the first thing to realize is that fundamentally a movement practice uh, is to serve your character. It's not for you to serve, right? So what matters isn't that you did a jump. It's what the jump did for you. Mm -hmm. So that's the first realization. And once you make that realization, then the way that you look at it changes. And, you know, maybe people are a little bit skeptical about that. But if you, if you think about anyone who has a really long-term sustained physical practice that you admire, and you ask them the question, like, why do you do what you do? You'll never hear them say something that's direct about the physical practice. Like you won't, you talk to like a black belt in jujitsu and you're like, oh, why, why do you keep going back to jujitsu and they're like, well, I just need to learn the next choke. Like right. I've got 50 different chokes, but 51 is going to be cooler. Right. right. No, they always say, you know, I feel like it helps me, 
you know, it's really important for a community. Right, their answers sound person. exactly like that. They never go, here's the answer. They go, well, it's the journey is complicated. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, but it's always about personal growth. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's a really key thing to recognize is that what sustains us is personal growth. And, you know, if we think about like, we can also look at this from another lens, which is like storytelling, mm. right? You are interested in a story because the character transforms in a way that's relevant to you over the course of the story. So fundamentally a story can be about dragons and knights, or it can be about, you know, a little boy struggling with the death of his mother. Right. And if that story contains something true and relevant about how that character develops over time that resonates in you, it will move you and it'll be meaningful to you. And so you can think about your practices in the same way. You're trying to craft a story that allows positive and meaningful character transformation over time. So if that's the case, then there's two concepts that we've kind of played with here. One is, um, are you paying attention to that? Are you optimizing that? And the other is, um, is that character transformation actually making it to the social relational? So the two challenges I would have is practice some sort of insight generation with your physical practice. So what we do in our workshops is we have people dialogue. So after we do something, we'll ask them to pay attention to how it felt in their body. We'll ask them to ask whether it's familiar in their body. We'll ask them to, um, to link it to places in their life. Um, and then we'll have them talk to each other and talk about the insights that were generated. Now, if you don't have anyone to talk to, you can do the same process and you can use a journal to, to recognize your insights. Um, so that's a, that's a really good challenge. So go to your training session and when you're done with it, ask yourself, okay, who am I trying to become through this training session? And, and how did this training session serve me in that? Yeah, does it, does it supply yeah. that thing? And then the second one would be, um, find a way to make your pro, uh, movement practice, have that social relational, um, partner play characteristic and pay attention to what that brings up. Pay attention to your relationship to competition, your relationship to cooperation, your relationship to, um, you know, do you feel like you might let your partner down? Do you feel like you might want to be dominant? Do you feel like, you know, mm. you might lose and feel really uncomfortable with that and think about how that shows up in the rest of your life. And again, if you can dialogue about that with your training partners, that's great. And then if you can't, there's always journaling. Rafe, there's a, a lot of material here and I, I think I'm keeping up, but there's a lot of material that um, you can get in like a deep rabbit hole about like going into the theory of this. And I'm wondering if there's any story that jumps to mind that would um, elucidate a transformation that you've seen a student make. And not because I think every student can make immediate transformations, but if there's a spot where we can show like, this is what we did and this is how that student changed. Um, I think that'd be a really cool story to share. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to think about which, which, which stories to highlight. Um, and the first one that pops into my head is, uh, I had a, a student named uh, Mora who came to one of my workshops about four years ago. And, um, you know, I think she, she sort of self-identified as quite a, uh, a person who, who dealt with a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety. Mm-hmm. And she was looking at a jump and she was being encouraged by one of the other students. And, I, you know, I came up to her and I saw her prepping for this jump. And I, I, I did two things. First, I gave her permission not to do the jump. Um, <laughs> because I think that peer pressure to do jumps can, can be damaging, right? You don't want people to try things that they're not really ready for. But I told her, like, look, if, you don't, if you're not really ready for it, if you don't feel ready for it, you don't have to do it. And nobody's going to look down on you for that. However, I'm, I know that you can do this. I know that you're perfectly capable of it. And we're here to support you if you want to tr- try it. And she told me, um, is it okay? She asked me, is it okay if I cry while I'm jumping? 
And I said, yeah, of course. Um, and so she did the jump and she was crying and, you know, she landed and she was crying and she was laughing and she, and there was this big emotional release for her. Um, and you know, I talked to her a little bit about it afterwards and she sent me an email several months later saying that, you know, when she like had to confront something scary at work, she could touch that moment as a way to, to prepare herself for making the jump in the rest of her life. And, um, so she's now been coming f to that workshop for four years. And, um, this year she jumped off of, uh, a 30 foot cliff at Wacom falls for the first time. And she did a backflip off of, uh, one of the low ledges and she did a, <laughs> a backflip off of uh, a rope swing. It was the first time she'd ever done a rope swing. And she did a backflip off of it. And you know, she can't, she was like, she's she almost can't remember the person that she was mm. who was that afraid. It's so foreign to who she is now. Um, so that's, that is like, that was one of the most profound character changes, uh, that I can really track, you know, and, uh, it's, it's a beautiful thing. I talked to a lot of people and you're one of the persons who's like the furthest along in the personal, the personal self-reflective journey. And uh, I know that you do a lot of podcasts and I've listened to several of them, many of them. And you're using um, a lot of different tools to do your self-reflection, to like unpack things and think things through. And do you ever find it difficult to separate, um, right? In this particular moment, I'm, I'm just coaching. And in other moments, um, I mean, yeah, I'm with a group and I'm in a coaching role, but I am actually working on my personal development at the same time. Or do you find that just everything you do winds up being part of your self-reflective journey? Or is it only, all right, I'm, I'm working on this by myself today for self-reflection, and then next week I'm teaching a course? So I'm just kind of wondering, like, um, there's an interesting opportunity here to get some perspective on, like, an advanced level, someone who spent a lot of time working on the self-reflection. I'm wondering, is it, has it become a journey that's just encompassed everything? Or is it something you can separate from putting on your coaching hat sometimes? Yeah, I mean, when my coaching hat is on, everything serves the students, right? So I'll, I'll engage in my personal journey um, and I, I get really meaningful moments, um, but I'm always sort of, I'm always looking at whether letting that in is, ser is serving the rest of the people there, if that makes sense. Yes. So um, I'm trying to think of a, an example here. See, because the reason I ask is uh, I'm wondering if, because uh, the follow-on question is, has it always been that way or how far back does it go before we get to uh, the person who only had one mode, but like this, yeah. not that being self-reflective is bad or me, you know, the me mode is bad, mm -hmm. but sometimes I wonder, coaches seem to need to go through a transition where they can actually bifurcate and become, I can be either of those people. And mm -hmm. you seem to have mastered that ability to, you know, control the self growth part of it and yeah. be game on with the hat as a coach. Yeah. Like how far back do you think that goes before, you know, can you remember what it was yeah. like? Yeah. I mean, I remember there's always a tension. I think even now there's a tension between, um, part of what is inspiring to students and part of what is exciting is to see you, right? I think of one of the, the roles of the coach is aspirational leadership, right? So I can hold space for the rest of the group and I can also do stuff and showcase the process, whether that's like emotional vulnerability or it's doing a double backflip off of a cliff, right? Both of those can be exposing and, and sh kind of showing the way, right? And then there's this, this point at which you 
in showing the way you can get so engaged in the journey of what you're doing that you fail to pay attention to whether it's serving the people around you. Hmm. Um, and I would say that as a younger coach, definitely I would, I would notice myself like demonstrating and then getting really excited about the things that I was doing and, and then having to back myself off and say, okay, um, you know, like this isn't my playtime, right? right? This isn't my playtime. I need to pay attention to the, the, to everyone in the group and make sure that, you know, they're not now intimidated or scared because of the things that yeah, I'm doing. That's the bar that we're held to. Holy crap. Yeah. Right? Um, so there's, yeah, there's a skill in, in, in essentially like building rapport and empathy with the whole group and being able to, it's almost like a shared organism, right? It's like a shared networked nervous system that you're the node of as a coach. And you got to be able to feel the whole thing. And then you have to be able to feel um, whether your role in that moment is backgrounded or you're that role in that moment is foregrounded, right? So if I'm, yeah, so I mean, there, there's times when I'm teaching when, when I'm, like I said, doing a double backflip off a cliff and it's like, I'm, I'm taking a moment to do something that's challenging for me. You know, the first double backflip I ever did off a cliff was, um, at return of the source last year. Um, and, and that was like, I was very self-focused in that moment, but I had an awareness before I chose to let that self-focus come in that the group was in a place where that would serve them to see me go through the process. Cause seeing the process of somebody overcoming something is, is powerful. Right. Um, and they, you know, they had, they had been taken care of and we had other coaches there who were holding space for them, you know, and then there's other points where you're, you're just attuning to the whole group and making sure like who hasn't had a chance to speak, who hasn't had a chance to contribute, who hasn't been uh, pulled into the process, you know, and you're, you're just inserting yourself a little bit just to bring other people in. Um, so that's a, that's a process that. Like, I think there's an interesting evolution of knowledge that tends to move from implicit to explicit. So a lot of these things have happened for me implicitly where I've, I feel like they're called out by my students. Mm -hmm. They're not, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the feedback we get about return to the source and the long events that we teach that is that they're these really kind of self-transformational events. They're very much about tribe and connection and people, you know, uh, people come to them because they're movement events and they get to jump and be in these beautiful environments. Um, and then you ask them what was most meaningful to them at the end. And they never say that jump that I did the jump. It's the community. They, they yeah. always say the people and the connection and the talking and all this other stuff. And, um, and, and how that really creates this really safe emotional space and this ability to create deep connection. And, you know, I kind of laugh about that because I, I guess my self perception before all of this was that I was sort of an asshole that I kind of had a sharp, personality that I had a pretty mean sense of humor. Um, and, and I don't think that I created what has happened at those events, except in being willing to amplify what it yeah. was that the students told Cre me was most important and to them. hold it. Right. You're not. So they, you know, when they said, this is important, I said, well, what can I do that? That makes more of that. Hmm. Um, and so, the, the, the kind of the method has been implicitly growing through that and like telling stories. And, you know, that was a thing that I noticed was that if I, if I told people some scientific findings, 
Yeah, facts don't sway, right? Yeah, they don't. They don't. They don't. They don't impact in the same way. And then when I started telling stories from my own past and my own experiences, um, there was this massively improved um, impact on the students. And so then you started like looking into the art of storytelling and the art of narrative. Um, and so yeah, it's it's, it's this dynamic interrelationship between mm -hmm. the student and the teacher that creates what's been created. Was there anything about this event in particular that um, I, I, I want to say drew you in, but I think the interesting question would be um, what, what, what do you think would draw other people in? Because clearly this event like fit something for you. Like it makes sense to you to show up and, and like, but you have a way more considered um, analysis of your toolkit. Like coming to this event obviously is beneficial to you. It was obvious to you that it's beneficial. And I'm just wondering like, what do you think other people who might be on the fence about like, I don't know, should I fly all the way across the country just to sit in a log cabin for three days and run around in the woods, maybe a little bit, but mostly listen to people talk. Like what is it about this event that you think would draw other people in? Why should they uh, hopefully come back and talk to you next year? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, fundamentally, I think that we we all need to engage with other people who are deeply looking at the questions of how to best practice whatever it is that we practice, right? So one mind is a very small thing, really. And when you can network your mind with other people who are trying to solve related problems and are doing it um, in a, you know, a sophisticated and, and um, valid way, uh, that's, that's really valuable. And so this is an opportunity to do that. I, uh, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm mostly here as a teacher, less so as a student, um, for a variety of reasons, I'm not as able this year to engage as a student as I would like. Um, but I want to, right? Like I, I see the people who are here <laughs> and I see these things and it's like, well, yeah, I need to be a little bit better at this. I need to be a little bit better at that. Like, um, I'd like to understand more about body work. Brandy's doing some body work. Right. I need to understand lots more about business and sales funnels and, yeah. you know, all this stuff. And there's, there's people who are, who are addressing that, you know, I'm really interested in, in, in body mapping exercises and happy to see someone else's take on it. Even if you understand something really well, um, someone else's way of articulating it can give you an epiphany. And I think a lot of times that we, um, we look at events like this and we think, Oh man, I know that stuff. Right. Right. I know that stuff. And, but you mentioned before you were basically talking about perturbations and you're yeah. talking about, you know, going out of the woods and this like affects you. But like, if you come to this sort of event, yeah, you know the stuff, but guess what's going to happen. You're going to get these little twists, these little pushes off center to work those other ranges of motion, those other yeah. mental ranges of motion. So, insight is valuable mm. and it's not always easy to generate so if you can go into an environment that has a high likelihood of of creating some novel insights for you i think it's very valuable i want to be mindful of your time today so um where can people find you like what are your preferred methods um particularly if they want to talk more about these topics how can they reach out to you yeah our website's uh evolvemoveplay.com there's a pop-up to jump on our newsletter the newsletter's really uh, where we'd like people to engage with us the most. We're trying to kind of orient everything through that. Lots of cool stuff. Lots mm -hmm. of uh, free resources going to be sent out through that. Um, we also have a Facebook page, Instagram. Um, and the podcast, right? And of course the podcast and YouTube. YouTube's a big thing. Um, podcasting is something I'm, I'm really enjoying. It's uh, It's been on hiatus. We'll be jumping back into it um, in, uh, in probably end of October. Um, but you know we've had some really amazing conversations, and um, it's an incredible thing to be able to facilitate these. So 
I definitely highly recommend checking all those out. Thank you very much, Rafe. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Craig. This was one of 23 interviews from the 2019 North American Art of Retreat. To hear the rest, check out Art of Retreat on castbox.fm. You can find out more about the Art of Retreat at artofretreat.com. Thank you for listening.